How did the uh, the New Year's Eve there in Pickle Hollow go? Did did we lower Aunt Tappy from the barn again? It was kind of smooth sailing, and it was much warmer this year, oddly enough. Um, so yeah, it was just very it was a very nice ceremony, very nice lowering of uh, Aunt Tappy this year. Oh, that's good, and I I hope that she remembered to wear bloomers this year. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was alarming. It's me, Gertie, from the concession stand. <laughs> Tonight's show asks the question, what happens when a domestic from the Roaring Twenties meets with an ultimately, un- oh, I'm sorry, meets with an untimely death and becomes a guardian angel to a single-parent family from 60 years later? Question mark. You get... A mid-80s sitcom starring Bewitched Dick Sargent. Cue the intro. What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen? A pinch of the golden oldies. And a smidgen of streaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host DJ and Toppy. Hello, fine folks of Univaz. Welcome to the Marionette Theater on this fine evening. Good evening. Take your seats. We hope that you had a good new year. And to start the new year off right, you are joining us for our episode number seven. And just as the number seven suggests, there's a little bit of heaven in this. Oh, hey, that's pretty good, DJ. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just like the uh, theme of New Year's where everyone is talking about getting a new start on things, well, tonight's show is all about a TV show where people have a new start on things. So uh, this is a 1984 sitcom as our uh, showgirl suggested there, starring Mr. Dick Sargent from Bewitched. And this is about a, a domestic, a maid named Ethel. And Aww. back in the Roaring Twenties, well, she met with an untimely death. And, uh, well, she ended up being assigned to a family in the 80s of all times, 60 years later, after they've lost their mother recently, so... Right, and being reassigned, uh, she's reassigned by the powers above, uh, the heavenly host above, as an angel, um, to uh, to basically save a family on Earth. And this is to what, DJ? What is she trying to earn? She's trying to earn her wings, like... Of course! <laughs> like everyone in all the movies, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't think there's any bell ringing, though. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Uh, that's right, yeah. I, that's probably That was probably copyrighted. They couldn't do it. I'm certain. So let us just give it our listeners a taste of this uh, rare gem, because this was the first time TV show of its kind because unlike a lot of shows that were meant for network TV like ABC, NBC, this was Jane Fonda's at the time husband Ted Turner's 
attempt to have his own original programming at the time he launched Turner Broadcasting, TBS. And, uh, well, besides reruns, his showcase at the time was his baseball team that he owned, the Atlanta Braves. And he wanted to give folks something to watch uh, besides the baseball games and the reruns. So, ergo, Down to Earth was born. And um, for those of you who haven't caught the show, we're going to go ahead and play the theme song from that. Back in the days of Valentino, we know a maid named Ethel was so bright and alive. Rack a do, rack a do, rack a do. But she was struck down by a trolley. Dolly said goodbye in 1925. Ooh, 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 ooh. Ethel in heaven awaited patiently to earn her wings and be an angel fancy free. Sixty years later, the opportunity to help a family came through. Boop, 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 doo 23, skidoo. Back down to earth to teach the Prestons lessons. Richard, Lissy, Dwayne, and JJ, too. Now she must be a 1980s lady. Down to earth, it's so Could not like that theme song. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> now, um, go ahead. Oh, so quite interestingly, the theme song and the premise of the TV show, so the, the creator of the show was a songwriter himself, or at least at the time he was just newly getting started. Now, uh, some of you may be familiar with this artist, uh, Mr. Sam Harris. And he was discovered on Star Search, which I believe that was hosted by Ed McMahon, correct? Uh, yes, it was. And uh, Sam Harris became famous for performing one of the most well-remembered performances of Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. Now, uh, in more recent years, Mr. Harris has had several albums of his own, and he has been just a fixture of uh, present-day theater productions and has been happily married for some 20 years now to his husband. And uh, anyways, we will get back here to the 80s, Toppy. Um, Yeah, and before we do that, let's Mm -hmm. uh, welcome people in the chat room. Excellent idea. Um, Now... I think you. when we started, you saw someone was listening. We didn't see him in the chat room, and I think I found him briefly anyways. Mm-hmm. And um, he's joined us before, but uh, he's not. Uh, it's, 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 however, Marin Gertz. Marin. Oh, okay. And it's just that he has not clicked on the uh discord icon for our show so he's he's hanging out in an area of the of the chat room where there's 
nobody in at the moment. Okay, he may be in the general room. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, folks, if you're joining us for the first time when you first arrive on Discord, I like to call it the lobby. You're in the general room. So if you don't see anyone else typing out in the chat room, go ahead and look down on the menu there and you'll see a room that's labeled as Matinee Minutia. That's the name of our show. Right. I think that'll do it. And so you were saying that we have a few people that have joined us this, this evening, Toppy. Would you like to read the roll call? I'd love to. We've got uh, a couple of regulars. We got our pal Tommy uh, from New York. He's listening. And so is a friend of the shoe, Matthew Burlingame from Chubb's Gone Wild. Yay. And I do believe that my dear sweet hubby Billy is also with us. And it looks like we have a first timer in the chat room as well. A uh, a friend of Haunt Cubs, Mr. Brent, is with us. Oh, Brent. Hey, Brent. Great. Excellent. Glad you're here. So we have arrived at the part of the show where we kind of set the stage. We tell people about what's going on in the world. And we're going to do this a little bit different. We're going to try to save some time to talk about the rest of the show. So I'm going to try to do this in 30 seconds. Are you ready, Mr. Smelly? Whoa. All right. Okay. Good luck with that. Here we go. So the world in 1984, AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph, is found to be a monopoly and its divisions are separated. No more Ma Bell. Michael Jackson wins eight Grammys that year. The Soviet Union, the USSR, boycotts the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Uh, I do believe the U.S. Uh, boycotted the uh, Olympics that was in Moscow the winter before. Vanessa Williams becomes the first Miss America to resign once nude photos were discovered in Penthouse. <gasps> and then uh, Catherine D. Sullivan becomes the first American woman to complete a spacewalk. And just the last couple of items, uh, Ronald Reagan wins re-election, getting him a second set of four years. And then just to finish out here in 1984, to put things into perspective, the celebrities that entered this world at that time were Saturday Night Live's Kate McKinnon. We have actress Mandy Moore. We have America Ferreira, who is known for Ugly Betty and a new show called Superstore about the retail world. We've got Mr. Mark Zuckerberg, who is the founder of Facebook, Katy Perry, the pop singer, and Scarlett Johansson. So, that was a little over 30 seconds, but that was a good first try. Hey, very very well done. <laughs> Thank you, DJ. Uh, wh when did you say this debuted on TBS? It was in 1984. Now, I'm not sure the time that year, because, again, this was not network television, which normally has a set season of, you know, either a, a fall premiere when, when school goes back in session or a spring. So it is entirely possible because it's very popular for new shows to be premiered during the summer as a replacement for a rerun. And I wouldn't put it past Ted Turner to do that, because if you're trying to be unique and original, that's the perfect time to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, where were you in 1984? What part of your life were you in? Oh, I was just a wee one. I was repeating the first grade because I had allergy problems and I had to have ear surgery. <laughs> ah, 
All right. But I don't think I caught it that very first year that it was out. It may have been a few years later because I think uh, TBS didn't have that many original programs in its early days. So they tended to rerun it even after it was in its initial run. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say. Uh, and uh, Now, you you selected this. You knew about the show. Mm-hmm. I certainly did. Um, and, yeah. And uh, it was a favorite of mine to watch uh, with my father. And because, uh, you know, quality time in my house with the family was when uh, dinner was done and you got to watch TV. And of course, as a kid, you get, didn't get to choose what was on the TV. And you were lucky if it wasn't something like the news. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so we have a period of time when uh, new programming was being created that wasn't intended for network TV. So sometimes they took some risks. They they, uh, created shows they knew wouldn't necessarily fly with ratings. And of course, they got big sponsors. Now, uh, I did a little bit of digging, and this show was produced by a company calling themselves the Arthur Company. And uh, who paid the bills in those days was the the giant um, product company, you know, that makes your, your dish soap and possibly your, your hand lotion, uh, Procter & Gamble. Um, and uh, in an article I read, it was actually mentioned, because they're, you know, when you're paying the bills, you kind of brag when you save some money. Um, this executive at Procter & Gamble kind of bragged in a 1984 newspaper article. And uh, th- I found this in an article featured in the home state of the the lead actor on the show. When it started off, it was uh, the father character of Richard Preston. That's that- right, DJ. You mentioned Dick Sargent was in the show. And mm-hmm. I watched the first couple of episodes and I said, excuse me, there's <laughs> no Dick Sargent anywhere to be seen. And uh, he came along... I guess uh, you would call it the second season. Yeah, and that that begs the question because I I I was hard pressed to find out what happened that Dick Sargent joined the cast. Um, But going back real quick, Procter and Gamble basically bragged because they were saving lots of money. They took the production out of Hollywood, out to the hills. And they actually ended up filming at a church-owned location. Not sure how that came to be. But uh, yes, after the first season, Dick Sargent joined the cast. And, you know, um, it's one of those things where you have to wonder to yourself, because you can't really find the info out there. Did Dick Sargent originally audition for the role? And, you know, his schedule uh, didn't let him filmed the first season and they just held on to the role and said, Hey, you know, let's put you in this. Or was the show okay after the first season? And then they said, Whoa, we could have Dick Sargent. Bye bye, Steven Johnson. <laughs> We've got a bigger name. Yeah. You know, I was also not able to find the reason for this replacement. I'm just going to sh- just total guess. Folks, don't know if this is true, but the actor who played the first father, well, he kind of, I don't, it was like the weakest link, one of the weakest links about the show. And I have a feeling 
that maybe when Procter and Gamble took over, uh, they they said, you know, let's let's can this guy. And they 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 thought of Bewitched, and they said, "Remember on Bewitched when they got rid of Dick York and brought in Dick Sargent? Well, let's do that." And so they brought in Dick Sargent, who you know really was much better in the role. Now it's also entirely possible, and of course, the best thing about trivia is that we can kind of uh, walk on the breadcrumbs of of rumors and and uh, you know wanderings of our minds. Um, but because, uh, you know, people in, uh, entertainment industry, uh, you know, tend to, to network and, and, uh, you know, move in circles. One has to wonder if, um, Dick Sargent was brought in because of Mr. Sam Harris, because, uh, Sam Harris, who, uh, basically created Down to Earth was a homosexual gentleman. And uh, it was quietly kept that Mr. Dick Sargent was a, a member of the community. It wasn't until later that he publicly came out. But uh, his last partner is a gentleman that he came to know just a year before Down to Earth was off the air. So it's possible they just may have bumped into each other at a party. And Sam Harris said, hey, you are, I've got this part. And you would be great for it. Are you there, Toppy? Sorry, I'm here. Okay. Um, I, I heard everything you said. And, and what I said that you didn't hear was, no kidding, that's interesting. I had not heard that. But that sounds completely like that's exactly what may have happened. Yes. Yeah, so um, there's quite a bit on this show here. Now, also, to, to kind of, um, you know, uh, put things into perspective... Um, even though this was one of the first original programs for cable television, uh, you know, unbeknownst to possibly many, cable TV had been around for a while before. Now, cable TV first came into existence in 1948. So, you know, just after wartime and uh, some of the first communities in America that had cable television were in the mountains of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, basically, the purpose of cable in the early days was to bring the over-the-air antenna signals to homes in the mountains that couldn't receive it. So they, they were wired and, and basically got uh, you know the, the signals that they uh, couldn't in town. Right. So imagine this, folks, if you can. The cables originally were were not many and they would have the antenna that that got the signal and then they wanted to boost that signal to the folks living in the area and in places like pennsylvania where there's lots of hills and valleys that's a problem so they would build uh a, a, another antenna and then cable uh the sound from one antenna to the other and and that's how it was first used and uh it wasn't too much later that that they actually started bringing the cable down right into people's homes. But first, cable was just in antenna station to a antenna station. Which, uh, you know, if you think about it, is kind of uh, odd because I grew up out in the country and uh, it didn't seem like too many people I knew had cable at first. It seemed like 
that Cable was more of a, a city folk kind of thing. I don't know about you. <laughs> well, it's really interesting about that because Hare and Penkel Hollow were nothing if not uh, hills and valleys. And so we were also one of the earliest adapters of Cable. And um, and uh, it, it, it was so long ago that... Um, it was still something people were getting over the antenna and, and then uh, very entrepreneurial type people um, was, were able to get into this cable business um, if they had the money to invest in the equipment and stuff. Here's the funny thing is that early on um, the technology wasn't exactly complicated and lots of people who were good at electronics could figure it out. Consequently, a cable company would start up and start providing people with with cable and cable boxes to get the uh, the signal, but at the time they weren't scrambling, and a lot of folks sort of figured out the technology, made their own cable boxes, and went around selling them <laughs> to people and doing the the uh, connection themselves, and um, and so it took a while for um, that kind of thievery and, and hijinks to stop, but but it went on for a while, and then they started scrambling with signal, and and then it just became more complicated for people to do that. But I had a relative that actually made a lot of money by just hooking up people to the cable unbeknownst to the cable company. <laughs> yeah, I remember those days, and I... Uh... You know, we, we only had basic cable in my household for most of the year, but during the winter, that was the special treat because, uh, you know, mom felt bad for dad. He couldn't be in the outdoors doing the yard work or anything. So during the winter months, he was allowed to have HBO. And uh, yeah, that's when I got to watch uh, like uh, Fraggle Rock and such. And But, but I, I remember the cable company having to come out to the pole and they had to take out the uh, the scrambler on the line so that we could get HBO during those winter months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, also in uh, 1984, when Down to Earth was new on TBS, there were a handful of other shows on network television that to this day are, are sort of staples of that time frame. Now, on CBS, you had Kate and Alley, which I do believe ran four or five years and uh, starred uh, some Saturday Night Live talents. We also have on NBC, you had the A-Team. And then on NBC, also, you had the Cosby Show. So some, uh, you know, facets of that time. And certainly down to earth is a show that makes use of the the trope of the the hired help, the domestic, the maid. And that seems to be a, a fairly popular theme in American television because you know when when the family is doing good for themselves, they can afford to hire someone on. Case in point, like the Brady Bunch, you have Alice to help out the the burgeoning family there. But also, some of the other shows over the time that featured domestics, we had Give Me a Break in the 80s. There was also Different Strokes. And one of my personal favorites, Mr. Belvedere. Oh, yeah. And there was uh, Who's the Boss with uh, the ever handsome and uh, uh, kindly aging Tony Danza. (laughs) 
And, uh, you know, before the 80s, there were shows like Hazel. He also had Family Affair, The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. And then uh, there was Maud. And the interesting thing about Maud was the actress that played their housekeeper later on was on Good Times as the mother. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, also, of course, the Jeffersons. All right. Sounds good. Um, And uh, I'll just mention a couple of the other cable shows that were coming around the same time as Down to Earth. And that was a shoe uh, called Tush. Um, It was a late night sketch comedy and had comedian Bill Tush in it. There was something called Starcade. Um, and it was something called the Catlins. That was sort of a dynasty style soap. Um, there was something called Rocky Road and a sitcom called Safe at Home. Um, and they were like first run comedy series that were aimed at a family audience. And in the in the chat room, Spanky B. Arthur S. You know, basically was cable ripping off network TV, and you know. Yeah, they really weren't doing anything groundbreaking um, with these new shows. They were very much of the sitcom nature, um, with the exception of a, a couple tries. I just want to say a, a little bit about Procter & Gamble, because I, I just found this interesting. Um, and I'll, I'll try to be brief here, but it, I find it fascinating how advertisers started to get involved with programs. And um, when... I'm going to go back to radio as an example because a radio sort of set the template and and came around first. Um, but originally, radio, nobody intended there to be sponsors on the radio. Um, in fact, it was rather controversial that they did come along. A lot of people didn't want them, but the people that were advertising on radio stations were adver- were radio manufacturers like Westinghouse. So they were the ones um, kind of doing commercials because uh, it was their damn station. <laughs> and th- they wanted people to buy damn radios. So it made kind of sense. But, you know, after a while, well, nearly every household had a damn radio. So, you know, what are they going to they, they needed to expand how they advertised. And that's how other products came in. And... Uh, and Billy, I sent you a uh, Billy, uh, I'm sorry, DJ, I sent you a, a clip. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, what, what first came around were, um, spot advertised, but where you would just hear someone talk about a product and some of the earliest commercials were as, as long as half an hour. Um, and I am talking about the very earliest days of radio. And what you're going to hear in this is considered to be the very first radio jingle. And jingles became kind of a, a thing on radio and were used heavily in TV advertisements. And often they were sung, or at least a portion of it was sung. But what you're going to hear now is probably what people, historians would say, is uh, the very first Jingle, advertising jingle ever heard. Play it. Have you tried Wheaties? Their whole week with all of the brands. Won't you try Wheaties? 
<laughs> so, Seth, I found that absolutely fascinating. Um, now, Procter and Gamble um, uh, was is is a really old American company. Um, it was founded in 1837, um, and it specialized in health and consumer products. and um, And they're they're um, they originally basically sold soap and candles. And uh, when World War uh, when the Civil War came around, uh, they were one of the the companies that the federal government said, "Hey, please supply us with soap and candles," and they did, and that really um, certainly helped them. And uh, that's kind of what they they did. Now, in 1880, uh, they had a new product, and it was a soap that floated in water. DJ. Huh. Uh, all the other soaps would sink to the bottom of the tub, but uh, their their advertising slogan was, it's the soap that floats. That made it easier to find if you dropped it. No, and it was called I'm, Ivory Soap. I was going to say, I was going to guess the name because I've been told that I'm an old soul and I'm probably too young to know that, but I did know the, the name of the product. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, thank uh, you. So other products uh, that Procter & Gamble came out with was Crescal. Uh, which was a shortening made of vegetable oils rather than having your turkey fat sitting around or your bacon fat. And um, they they came out with Tide in 1946, Prowl shampoo in 47. Um, and uh, in 1955, they started selling a little toothpaste that would kind of become a big thing because it was the first one to have fluoride, and they called it Crest. Hmm. So... Um, in the early days of radio, Procter & Gamble got into producing shows to, well, advertise what they had. And it was the sole purpose of it. So a lot of the earliest things Procter & Gamble did um, were the uh, very first 15-minute long daily serials, of which there were many. Uh, they were very popular. There were soap operas, soap. They were selling soap. And they first were 15 minutes, and then some of them went to half an hour. And, of course, when TV came along, many of the soaps went right over to television. Uh, Procter & Gamble was involved in producing these shows way back then. And, of course, uh, in the 1984, we find they are the first company to get in on cable and with uh, Down to Earth. And so there you go. That's how they started out. And, of course, they're still around. The things you said, DJ, that was kind of interesting was that you said that they, to to bring the show in uh, a little cheaper, they they weren't in Hollywood. They were doing it somewhere else. Yeah, I think uh, I read that it was Thousand Oaks, California. So it was out in the suburbs. All right. Now, did you now? Okay. So maybe it's my monitor. Maybe it's because I saw it on YouTube. Or maybe this damn studio didn't have really good lights. But was this not dark and not exactly well lit? <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, certainly think that uh, it it may not have had the biggest or the big budget that the network shows did. So there were some shadows in those sets. And I don't know about you, but when I watched that show, it was hard to tell what kind of a place the family lived in. Because when 
the exterior shots you know, uh, came into the show when you started an episode or you ended an episode or came back from commercial, you saw this beautiful house, but you weren't sure if it was a duplex or if it was a townhouse. And then when you got into the set, it looked like a condo, like something that would have been a, a spinoff of the Golden Girls. Yeah, exactly. And I swear at night out of the living room set, there was a window that looked like they were in a skyscraper. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. But there were, there were, <sighs> I'll just use the word amateurish. There was an amateur quality, especially before Procter and Gamble took over, that you, you, you knew you weren't watching ABC, NBC, or CBS. You just knew it. There was something about the quality that was off, and maybe it was the lighting. Maybe just the quality of the show in general. Um, what do you think about that? I absolutely agree. And, of course, there were scenes where at least the the first actor who played the father who wore glasses, uh, you know, in just certain angles, you could see the lighting of the set. And he, if this were a, a regular network TV program, that probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, that, there were a lot of little things just like that that made you think, hmm, you know, uh, this must be everybody's first time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I, the acting, I might even say, is kind of along those lines as well, especially that uh, first season. Um, there was just something amateurish about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And uh, wouldn't you say that the older brother, he was just kind of a Michael Keaton ripoff, wasn't he, from Family Ties? I, I would tend to agree. Now, that actually brings up an interesting subject. The actor that played the older son, whose name was David Kaufman, at the time that Down to Earth was being made, he, he, like a lot of actors... You know, like uh, the the John Hughes films that were supposed to portray teenagers in school. This young gentleman was actually about 23. And um, before he was on TBS, he had several cameos in his late teens that included Fantasy Island, Simon and Simon, and of course Remington Steele. And that uh, starred uh, Pierce Brosnan, who got to be 007 for a little bit. But um, afterwards, he mostly worked as a voice actor. So David Kaufman wasn't in front of the camera as himself. Um, he had credits for a animated series, a cartoon, Back to the Future, which was based upon the movies. You know, starring uh, Michael J. Fox and um, Christopher Lloyd. And uh, this was done in 1991. So, you know, a handful of years after Down to Earth was off the air. But there was 26 episodes. And uh, David Kaufman played the voice of Marty McFly. Are you there, Toppy? I apologize. I did the exact same thing before. Um, Also... I, I seem to recall this. This was Dick Sargent's last TV show, I believe. That would stand to reason, yeah, because uh, it was it, he died in '94, which was about seven years after Down to Earth went off the air, and 
let's see, uh, from what I recall, 12 years after Down to Earth, uh, some folks may not be aware because there was quite a bit of gossip in the community at the time, of course, because he had just recently come out of the closet and there were a fair number of people in the entertainment industry that it was assumed that so-and-so had HIV or AIDS because of the time frame that, uh, you know, that we were going through at that time during the Reagan administration. But what actually had happened was Mr. Sargent was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And back in those days, um, you know, the, the uh, treatment plan for those who have cancer was much more a grim prognosis. So uh, he only survived for a few years after his prostate cancer, but he uh, had a magical time with Elizabeth Montgomery, his co-star from Bewitched, because he and she got to serve as grand marshals at the L.A. Gay Pride Parade. Mm-hmm. Um, also, he, I believe that... The fact that he was sick is what caused him to come out, and he knew that there were rumors circulating about him, and he, he did not have AIDS, and he decided, well, I'm, I'm going to go out there because everyone thinks that if you're gay, you get AIDS and die, and I don't want people to think that I've got AIDS and I'm dying from AIDS, so I'm, I'm going to make the press release, hey, I'm gay, and no, I don't have AIDS, and I've got cancer, and... I think that was why he came out. Yeah, he he wanted, and and uh, of course, that's a theme in more recent years too. You know, if you, uh, you know, come to the public yourself prepared and use your own words, then people can't spin it. And certainly, exactly. certainly in that time, with the the AIDS epidemic being at it, some of its scariest uh, time. Absolutely. He wanted to nip that in the bud. But uh, Matt uh, Spanking B. Arthur in the chat room was talking about uh, the star that played the daughter on the show. The character's name was Lissy, and the actress's name was Kyle Richards. Now, she was 15 years old when Down to Earth was being produced, and she had previously starred in 19 episodes of Little House on the Prairie. And uh, she also had occasional TV appearances after she was on Down to Earth. And she starred in, later on in the 90s, she starred in 21 episodes of ER. You know, the show that had George Clooney? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, And, you know, for those folks who haven't seen it, I think, it it looks like the only person in the chat room who may have seen this is is Spanky. Um, But just summarize the show. What was it about, DJ? Certainly. So uh, this maid who met with an untimely death comes back to Earth as sort of a a guardian of this family who's recently lost her mother. Now, uh, of course, just as with a lot of 80s shows, they go over themes of of gender issues. Like the daughter, Lissy, she's always protesting one thing or another in school. But Ethel, the maid, she ends up filling in for that that motherly role. She helps her make decisions about fashion and about dating. And then, of course, you have uh, the other characters, which you've got uh, Dwayne, the oldest son, and she helps him out with dating. But basically, she she fills in for the mother role. And um, 
she from from time to time she is visited by um, well, kind of her supervisor. And this character changes throughout the run of the show. Um, we have Lester Luster is the name of one of her uh, supervisors. And, right. they, and these other characters are also angels. Yes, yes, that's important to note. Because since Ethel herself, the maid, is an angel, she's not earthly, so she can actually spontaneously appear uh, in a scene, and they actually make use of that from time to time. Um, in one episode that I watched, the oldest son was deciding that he was going to try to make it in the family business. He was answering phones at his dad's real estate office, and he decided that he was going to try to sell a house. Well, he gave him the wrong address. He gave his own home address by mistake, and they had to scare off the people who came to see the house. So, uh, Ethel conspired with her supervisor, and um, he appeared in the fireplace as the severed head of the previous owner. <laughs> but uh, that just played into some of the uh, of the um, interest of the occult, and uh, you know, certainly spirituality that seemed to be popular in those days, because the the uh, the wife of the the couple that was viewing the house walked around the place almost a little possessed and uh, she was trying to call out to the spirits like it were a seance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it, it had bewitched elements, you know, like ding, pe- the angel would appear and disappear. And that was, that was an element they used. It was, and basically cause she's an angel and because she's lived in a another era, she is kind of like trying to help the single dad with his three darling children and keep them well adjusted. And she's she's trying to, uh, um, you know, help the family to earn her wings. Ultimately, um, now what did you th- what do you think of the actress that portrayed uh, the angel? Well, it changed a few times, but the the first guy there, I I can't remember um, the name of the actor there, but he, well, I mean Ethel. Oh, Ethel. Ethel. Okay, you know it, it's quite interesting to note that um, she is an American actress. She's actually from Pennsylvania. The actress that played Ethel, let me get to her name here, was uh, Carol. Carol Mansell, and um, I don't know if it was just the time period that she was supposed to be from. Since she was from the 20s, she uh, she was supposed to act sort of out of place. And that's some of the, the appeal of the show is that, you know, she, she plays innocent, not knowing about this thing or that thing. Like, at one point, she... She goes to learn how to drive a car. And she says to the guy, don't you have to crank it up first? Yeah. But uh, Carol Mansell, I thought she she played the role fairly well. And in some way, I thought she was English just because of the way she portrayed the character. Now, I'd be interested to see if she was putting on a voice to do that character. 
I think she was. Yeah, because it seemed I, rather youthful. Yeah, she was doing a little bit high pitch. She was trying to be like a flapper and like, um, I can't think of the actress's name, but it would have been early on uh, for perhaps uh, the time of, um, uh, oh, what's her stuff that, you know. Marlena. Uh, oh, well, Mae West. Yeah, she was trying to be an actress of that age, mm-hmm. um, and 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 she kind of if if the thing was in black and white, you know, she they were trying to give her a a flapper look, and and she kind of had these pursed lips that you would have seen in silent movies actresses of the time. So they were trying trying to do that with her, and yeah, I think she was you know, making she's making her voice a little high pitched. Um, just to sound cuter or something. Right. Now there were there were many many moments throughout the uh, the well, I, I tried to cram in a bunch of the show, so I probably watched about a dozen, not quite the whole first season. But um, there were several moments throughout that first season where her character really stood out in a good way. And I think that this was probably, you know, something that challenged the actress because at one point she was trying to play hard to get the, the father was going to go to a wedding, but she had walked into the conversation. So she didn't know all the details. She thought the father was dating someone and was going to propose come to find out he was actually just the best man and he was holding on to the ring so she puts on airs trying to pretend that she's too good for him. And she he walks into her bedroom to try to talk to her. And she's doing her best impression of Lucille Ball. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you cut out there again, Toppy. Am I back? Yep, you are. Okay. Um, the uh, uh, What that plot you just described. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I didn't see that episode, but that plot describes an episode I did watch. So they reused that, that same gag. <laughs> um, and in the one I saw is she was um, some a, a business associate of the father was suddenly interested in her and she played hard to get um, because she was told by another angel that, you know, of course she couldn't marry the guy. Oh yeah. And, and so she had to pretend to be, loose and and she tried to be an, uh, a woman of loose morals so that the guy would get turned off <laughs> and in that one it wasn't lucille ball she was trying to be she was trying to be may west and she tried to talk like may west and she really the actress i in my opinion really did a bad job trying to be may west <laughs> at any rate uh that yeah so they recycled that plot at least once um, the show went for what? Oh, four years? Yes. And, and actually, I think I caught that same episode as well. And it's interesting to note that in that circumstance, she ended up running into, um, well, the adult version of someone who she had worked for. And uh, this particular person had been a child when she was serving a family back in the 20s so she had to be careful otherwise he was going to put two and two together and realize that she was out of place and out of time (laughs) yeah um in general uh, this show 
just put the amateurishness of, of it aside. It was kind of cute, mm-hmm. and it, it had a, a kind of a a naivete or innocence to it that was appealing. And and that actress, you know, okay, maybe she couldn't do a good Mae West, but she was pretty appealing. And in in general, you know, I would say it was kind of a cute show. Yeah. I- uh, not the most sophisticated thing you're ever going to lay eyes on, but it was kind of cute. And, you know, I think that they sort of played it safe because, uh, as I suggested with the history of television, there's sort of been a fascination with the hired help in, you know, American sitcoms. So if they were going to have a TV show about a family, well, sure, you could have the maid like every other TV show, but let's put a modern twist on it. She's not just any maid. She's been, you know, assigned as a guardian angel. Right. Also, I think um, like today, um, cable has gotten so much bigger and has, you know, gone on to make much better shows and more elaborate shows than this. But this was the first of its kind, but I have a feeling it went for four years because it wasn't a network show and it didn't need to garner the ratings that something on CBS or NBC would get. Cause this show certainly would not have survived right on network TV. Yeah. And so it to a, you know, it helped it that it was a cable show and they kept it around obviously because it must've been doing okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it didn't need to get the ratings that a network show got, would get. Yeah, and I I would tend to think that um, if uh, if I could choose, or you know, if I had to say something that I would like to have seen more of in that show, I would like to have had them explore more of her past. Now, she in the later parts of the show had a new supervisor from heaven that ended up being an ex-fiance from back in the 20s. Yeah. So certainly they had to explore things from their pasts there. But I would have liked to have had her run into more figures that were part of her past life so that she had to try to, you know, masquerade. Or maybe she found out what happened to her family or, you know, had to avoid reconnecting with her family in in the present day. Right. Also, this is the impression I got is that the father certainly didn't know she was an angel, but didn't at least the youngest kid know? I think that the only person in the family in the beginning, at least, that knew was the youngest son, JJ. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. And I think it may have something to do with the innocence of youth. The idea is supposed to be that it was... Um, something that was clear to him because he hadn't become an adult yet. He wasn't jaded and he could see the truth. Mm -hmm. Oh, also, um, your hubby, Billy posted something in the chat room that I'm going to read, but, um, it's an article about the show. And one of the reasons, um, that Billy points out is that they, weren't in Hollywood, they were outside of Hollywood, is, is that they, were, they didn't have to have union workers, and uh, they were in a building owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. <laughs> oh, I can only assume somebody went to them and said, look, this show's about angels. See, we got religion. 
And I can just imagine the dollar signs flashing in Ted Turner's eyes. <gasps> it's a tax write-off. We're using a church. Uh, you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Um, yeah. And, and again, I have no idea why the original production company either quit or got dumped and that Brock Procter and Gamble took over, but it, it improved technically quite a bit um, under Procter and Gamble. I almost want to say that by the time they got involved, they, they maybe really did have a studio audience because at first it was so obvious they didn't really have a studio audience, but I'm, I almost want to say that at least by the second year, they really were filming in front of a live audience. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. I, in the, that first season, they had you know a, a laugh track that was so horribly fake. Um, <laughs> and and maybe all Procter and Gamble did was bring in a better laugh track. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't. <laughs> so we're at that part of the program where we talk about how much we liked it or didn't like it. So now uh, I will have, I will say to the listeners that uh, unlike a lot of TV shows from that time frame, this hasn't been released on DVD. It wasn't even a time life special. So, uh, you know, maybe the fine folks at the, the uh, oddball warehouse there called shout factory might eventually Give us a season or two. But Toppy, if this were available on DVD and you were, you know, out in your cabin in the woods, would this be in your overnight bag? No. No? <laughs> no. I'd be very happy to uh, watch what I can on YouTube, which is how I saw it. And probably how, if you're going to watch it, that's probably where you're going to have to to see it. Um, what about you? Well, you know, uh, I probably would pass it up too, but if it were in the thrift store, I might pick it up. Um, <laughs> right, if it was in the $5 bin. No, this is how I envision the packaging. They'll release the first season and uh, no one will buy it. And then uh, they'll release the second season and people will say, hey, it's got Dick Sargent and it. it can't be that bad. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, could be. be. I guess maybe that's what part of uh, you know down to earth appealed to me is I I feel that being the youngest of four kids in this family, my family, uh, I related with being an old soul. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I I think I if 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 someone said told me, you know, that DJ he's kind of an old soul, I would say, you know what, you are right, you are right, (laughs) Um, and uh, I mean that in in a good sense, by the way. If you're ready, we're gonna go ahead and set things up for next time, which. Our next episode will be on Friday, January 18th. So in two weeks at 9 p.m. right here on Univaz. That's right. Um, Yeah. Shake those coins. What do you got for us there? All right. uh, Let me open up the capsule. Ah, There we go. Hey, uh, I... Okay, that's what I thought it was, DJ. I thought it would be kind of fun uh, because uh, Mary Poppins has resurfaced. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of Dick Van Dyke. Uh, and that made me want our next movie to be Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, excellent. I loved that film. Um, I recall 
it very fondly. As a matter of fact, it, for years and years, I thought it was a damn Disney movie. Uh, of course, it's not, but uh, it's certainly in a Disney uh, frame of, of mind. So, yeah, next time, JJ Bang Bang. Okay, and uh, as luck would have it, sir, I have a copy, so when you come by Chateau Star Sage, we can view that on the big screen. <laughs> oh, good. Children, oh. I Children. <laughs> Is frightening or what? No kidding. All right, folks, have a good evening, and thank you for joining us. Say goodnight, Gracie. All right. Good night, Gracie. And thank you, Billy, uh, Tommy, uh, Spanky, Spanky Bertha, um, and anyone else who we don't see out there listening. Thank you for um, listening. And thanks for the folks being here live in the chat room. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our program is live every other Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Go to univospods.net. Click the tower for streaming audio. Enter Discord for our chat room. You can find this show wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Matinee Minutia. Join our Facebook group or visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Have an idea for a future show or just want to message us? Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univospods.net.